you know, and even within England, there's different accents, you know. I don't believe that. podcast features explicit language and spoilers hello and welcome to better late than never this is a podcast where i invite a friend to watch a blockbuster cult favorite or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before after we watch the movie my guest will decide if it was better late that they've been missing out by not having seen the film or never the movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. And this week, throw all of that out the window because we're not doing any of that because we're not watching a movie at all. That's right. This week, we are watching a play. This week, we're doing Hamilton, the musical, which debuted both off-Broadway and on in 2015 to do Hamilton, I am joined by returning guests, Josh and Dan. What's up, guys? Hey there. Hi. And by first-time guest, Robin. Robin, hello. Hello. So, Robin, this is your first time on the podcast. Yes, I am very excited. Thank you for having me. And we're super stoked to have you. Welcome aboard. Can't wait. I'm glad that I was here for this special episode. I know, right? Hamilton. This is kind of a big deal. It's the biggest deal. I was just going to say that. Hamilton is the biggest cultural event of our time. Of oh my time. God. I know, right guys? So wait, so there's there's a big group. There's four of us here. Let's do a quick poll. Have any of us actually seen Hamilton yet? No, <gasps> have not. No. Yes. None of us? What? None of us have seen Hamilton? I've seen Hamilton. I've seen Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. Doesn't Isn't that count. The same thing? <laughs> Isn't that that's in the Hamilton canon, right? I mean, I've read books about Hamilton. Oh, so you're so Dan, you are familiar with the man Alexander Hamilton, and yes. Robin, you've seen the play. I've also seen the dollar or five or ten dollar bill that he's on. I forget now, but yes, yeah. I've seen the play live or just the uh the to be clear we're not actually going to see the play hamilton the world is still ravaged by coronavirus and broadway is still shut down and inactive so we will be watching the recorded version of hamilton that is on disney plus right now but so robin you've seen actual live real hamilton or the recorded version that we're about to do so i went to london uh in november to visit my friend who was living there for a semester and i somehow swindled, swindled my way into a front row ticket to Hamilton. Oh, damn, son. You saw it on the West End? I saw it on the West End. And not only in the West End, in the front row. A front row seat. 
Damn. Damn. In the house. Wow. It's, it's kind of, it was a real affront to our the house hier- our hierarchy. The balance has still not been restored. Was the audience like against Hamilton? Because it was like sort of very anti-British, I imagine. You'd think that, but they, um, well, I won't give away anything, but, you know, they seem to like anti-British parts the most. <laughs> oh, it's very British of them. Exactly. Exactly. It was kind of, yeah, kind of on point. How they feel about the part where he flippin' died. Whoa, 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 whoa. Spoiler whoa. alert, Josh. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Hang Look, on. It's, been around, it's been around for five years. If you don't know that part of Hamilton. I don't I, know this part. That's the whole point of this, I Josh. Mean, this was 400, 300 years ago. Obviously, he died at some I mean, point. I know he's dead. Yeah, you, so that's what hold he, on. We're, we're not at the predictions part yet, Josh. Okay. You Let's said just hang on one second. Let's take this. Historical books about Hamilton. How, do, how could you read history books about Hamilton and not know his. Okay, I will back down. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> there is there is a, a a structure to this podcast, okay, that I will not see broken, even okay. though the whole format's out the window, given that we're not even doing a movie. I'll also say, I know we're not at the prediction stage yet, but I was pretty sure, but not 100% sure, that this was a filmed version of the play versus a, like, a made for like TV movie with just like the script of Hamilton. Oh, interesting. I know the answer. I know that. Yeah. Um, I know. I mean, more I'm pretty about sure that. I know what it is. Especially yeah, since that. You said that, but yeah. Yeah. Is that, yeah. But like, you know, I, I, I actually like have deliberately not looked into this because I have you. That's impressive myself. that you've been able to avoid it. Well, well, so here's the first thing I wanted to ask about, because, I mean, Hamilton has been a cultural phenomenon for the past five years. So what for those of us who haven't seen it yet, which I guess is uh, me, Dan, Josh, what are impressions of this play? What what do you know about it? What's its reputation? It's hype. What do you think you know? Now we're starting to get a little bit into predictions, but even just on a meta sense, like well, Josh knows everything about it, apparently. Well, look, I'm going to let you all finish, okay? But I'm, I'd like to say that when I moved to New York in 2000 and, oh, uh, God, 2007, and was it really 2007? Um, the big thing at the time or shortly after I moved in the, in the next few years was Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, a musical about Andrew Jackson. And it was a hit at the public, and it went to Broadway. At the same time, Lin-Manuel Miranda had a hit called In the Heights. In the Heights. That was a huge deal. And about two years later, it was rumored that Lin had a new musical about Hamilton that also debuted at the public and then transferred to Broadway and it was a smash hit at both places. It was, it was for a long time, the hottest uh, ticket in town and the type of show, a book of Mormon level popularity. I mean, the tickets sell out the second they get released in blocks, people resell them for hundreds of dollars. People would buy Hamilton bootleg tickets for hundreds of dollars. It's uh, it's quite the thing. And I was unfortunately not able, I never saw it. I never saw it at the public and I never saw it on Broadway. Um, so that's my background with it uh, and my knowledge of, of it until this point. And now Josh, you didn't just live in New York, but you also uh, worked professionally in the theater world. 
yeah, I actually worked with the the man himself, Lin Manuel Miranda. Oh, damn! At one point, very briefly, it was it was a one night event, um, and I interact with him a bit uh, every now and then. But but we were, I would say, I we were peers to a certain extent. I was, uh, we were in the same circles. You kind of like you 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 sort of like the the and, man behind him. You sort of like made him who he was. I was, uh, let's say, like his Aaron Burr. Uh, oh, damn. You his career. <laughs> Robin is negging this. Robin, what is your experience with the musical Hamilton? Well, when I got this ticket, I was trying to kind of go into it and think to myself, this has to be overhyped. I was like, there's no way that it's as good as everybody was basically making it out to be almost like their new religion. And I was very excited to see it. And I, I mostly was just like kind of going into it almost like skeptical. I was very excited, but I was just like, it's probably just going to be all right. Don't say how it turned out yet. I won't. Save that for her too. But yeah, yeah. That's, that's sort of what I've heard about it. The same is that, you know, when this play came out, it was like the absolute like redefining thing. Like it, it came on a little slowly. Like I, I heard about it like it was sort of like circling my attention for a while, but then all of a sudden it just sort of like crystallized and exploded. And it was, it was kind of like, you know what you said, Josh book of Mormon level everywhere and just the absolute shit. So I have a pretty high level of hype going into this. Well, it Um, got a fair level. So what happened, uh, one anecdote from the Hamilton train was that Barack Obama invited Lynn to the white house I think just to celebrate him or celebrate in the Heights and Lynn brought with him an excerpt from Hamilton and performed it. And that helped fuel a very early uh, interest and excitement and buzz. People were talking about it around the theatrical water cooler. Mm. But this was, yeah, this was that. So Dan, have you, how have you avoided the Hamilton behemoth? And also I, 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 I wanted to also add, Dan, uh, your perspective uh, that you're bringing to the table here, and part of the reason why I wanted you on this podcast is that you're the um, founding father's dork of this group. Uh, is is Alexander Hamilton your favorite founding father? And if not, who is? Man, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, he's definitely up there. He's def- like I, I don't know if I've ranked them lately in my mind. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's not, like, good on – this won't come off well to conspiracy theorists, but I'm a big fan of, like, the Central Bank, which uh, Hamilton sort of was responsible for, or at least the precursor to the Central Bank. I think that was really uh, useful. Nerd. <laughs> was, wasn't, that, wasn't, that, wasn't that just taken down by Jackson? Oh, I mean, he, uh, he was – I don't – I mean, I don't know exactly, but he wasn't uh, – proponent of it anyway so you only do founding fathers history hmm hmm well andrew jackson's the worst president or arguably one of the worst presidents so tell that to arthur m was your baby let's not forget uh andrew johnson i've i've never i've always liked to i always like to reference what are those terrible gilded age presidents they're they're pretty awful rutherford b hayes hey Rutherford B. Hayes was a lollipop. Or like someone like Garfield, who didn't he run for president twice in non-consecutive terms? No, that's he, Cleveland. he's a cat that loves lasagna. 
Oh, <laughs> first and last appearance on the podcast. Am I right, guys? <laughs> Frankly, Robin, I'd, I'd kind of like for you to leave right now. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I, I get it. It was it was worth it, though. Who was the president that existed that was around for like 30 days because he got sick at his uh, his victory speech? William Henry Harrison. Ah, go to William Henry. He caught, left at a high uh, note, just like Seinfeld. Caught pneumonia because he had such a long uh, inauguration speech in bad weather. And he refused to wear a coat. <laughs> uh, no, Dan, sorry, we kind of bogarted your territory. So. Oh, it's all right. So, But yeah, I mean, I guess I avoided it deliberately. I try to do stuff like that with pop culture things that I want to see. Because I actually, I mean, I knew that it was like a phenomenon. And I was interested in seeing it. So I didn't want to like have it ruined, so to speak. Um, so what? I just like didn't look into it. I mean, I also didn't think that it was like something I needed to like hear about specifically because it was, you know, a historical event. So so that's my question. Earlier when I was joking about the content of the show, which I actually don't know uh, what happens in terms of plot. But I, I can anticipate it because there is a very famous story about Alexander Hamilton. You you do know that that one very, very famous story, right? I mean, you're talking about the duel? Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know like the basic stuff. I just don't know where the play will... I mean, of course, we can all assume that that will happen in it, but I just don't know. Can I ask, do all of us know about the famous duel that ended Alexander Hamilton's life because of that Got Milk commercial? Spoiler alert. <laughs> Aaron Burr! Aaron Burr! What if we did this podcast for that commercial, Dave? You've just ruined it. <laughs> oh, sorry. Fun fact about that commercial, too, by the way, directed by, drumroll, Michael Emmanuel Bay. Emmanuel Miranda? M- Michael Bay? Yeah. What? It re- it really? Yeah. He's come a long wow. way. Yes. He was a, I feel like he was a, already a, a, along the way when he direct when that came out. I mean, he's gone downhill from there. I honestly, a surprisingly probably. restrained Michael Bay. Maybe commercials are his true passion. We don't know. Okay. Well, Robin. Yes. You saw the play on the West End, so I'm gonna assume it was not the original Broadway cast. That is correct. Do you know? who's in the original Broadway cast, because uh, I do believe that this version we're about to see is that, right? I believe so. That, that I, I know one person who's in the original cast. Oh, yeah? Who? Oh, I've, I've heard uh, Michael Bay actually makes a surprise appearance. That would be crazy. <laughs> All right. So one thing I will say is that I do know for a fact that this is a uh, as far as I know, it's at very least the original Broadway principles. And it, I know that it was filmed um, during the original run. I'm not going to say anything about the content or like who plays what, but I, w- I just want to say that this was... So one thing that has been very... Um, you know, my perspective as someone who's in the theater community, uh, COVID has had a significant impact on... Obviously, theaters are shuttered. Uh, people are doing online projects to varying degrees of success. But what it has exposed is there is a lack of really professionally filmed uh, theater pieces. Uh, this one is 
uh, kind of stands out. Now, there's the National Theatre Live. The National Theatre of London does record a lot of their productions to be broadcast in, in theaters, so they have a catalog that's really great. And they're not alone in that regard, but is it's like as soon as um, we all had to go remote, theater educators around the country were like, well, what do we show our students? Where do we send them? What we have no, because theater is, uh, there's so many unions involved. Uh, there's so many rights related issues. It's, it's a very uh, unwieldy thing to film. Um, it's also just something that people have always said it's not worth the cost to invest in intricate film pieces. Uh, so this Hamilton dropping in this manner is kind of, I'm not going to, I have, I'm saving my reservations about what this is going to be, but I have a feeling it's going to be a good thing for uh, just the theater community in general, just the fact that it exists. I'm, I'm going to say that right now. So I mean, you're basically, you're predicting that this is going to be uh, good filmed theater. Yes. I mean, because I'll to say, tell you the truth, I often find that filmed theater is not great. And I felt like it was unfortunate that we were going to have to see Hamilton this way because that's, you know, not an ideal way to see live theater. But, you know, hopefully you're right. I will also say back on your point, though, that I tend to be skeptical of filmed live theater. I mean, I suppose I don't have a lot of experience with it, but it sort of doesn't feel the same like right part of the uh, like the coolness of live theater is that you're seeing it live and it's just like the energy is like much different like i would much rather just watch a movie right it's like watching a filmed concert you don't really want to do that it's like yeah it's great but the whole point is being there and being close to the people performing and yeah seeing the other people enjoying it around you and i i tend to agree with you it's also just sometimes it's difficult to like, is it if it's just shot like a static shot? Because like in live theater, you can sort of, you your focus will go from place to place right. with your own head and eyes. Where, well, they did, they did know that this was, they were filming this with it in mind that they wanted to release this. So hopefully because they had the intention of releasing it, at least you know, either theatrically theatrically, or somewhat in this way, they did it well enough that, you know, I'm sure something will be lost, you know, just by not being live anymore. But, um, you know, hopefully they do it well enough that we get, you know, like 80% of the way there. No, sure. I, I'm sure that's the case. I just, the, the fact of the matter is you have to, if you're not just doing a static shot, you have to make an editorial decision on like where to focus the camera. Oh yeah. And that by its nature is like changing the experience. Yeah. When it's done well, and cause we have probably watched about five or six plays uh, over the past few months when it's done well, you don't think about it. You just follow the narrative of the story. I guess what I'm saying, Dan is the idea that your eyes are just going where they're supposed to. Um, it was almost subconscious. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it's just I'm just sort of making the point that film and theater are like two fundamentally different mediums, which I don't know how, like if that's considered um, like a thought that most people have or they just sort of think that. I mean, like I don't see theater as like just a live version of a movie. Like I think it is a different medium just by the nature of it, if that makes sense. It does. Bring it back around again. 
apart from Lin-Manuel Miranda himself, anybody know who's in this play? No. I exempt myself from this question because I could rattle off a, a, a bunch of names. Okay. Robin? I just, I, ju- I know one of them, but I forget their names now. I was like reading some tweets from him today, but I forget his name. <laughs> okay. I got a few. Uh, I'm not sure who plays who except for one of them. So uh, I know David Diggs. Correct. And Leslie Odom Jr. are in this. Yes. And um, that's another thing about this play. Um, most of the cast is people of color, um, but there's also a white guy in this play, unfortunately. Um, and I do know who he plays because he's playing King George the Third, And <laughs> I keep wanting to say Jared Goff, but um, that's the J- quarterback J- for John- the L.A. Rams. Yes, his name is Jonathan Goff. Jonathan Groff. Groff. Jonathan Groff, yes. Yeah. And so... Uh, Are any of these people famous outside of theater? Yes. They're at least working. And yes, uh, I don't know. I, I think I'm actually a little too old to, to appreciate them. But I know Jonathan Groff is... I think he was on... He was on Mindhunter. Okay. He oh, was Kristoff in Frozen. Oh, I saw <laughs> yes. Frozen recently, actually, during COVID. So this will be my second musical I've seen during quarantine. He's uh, uh Dan to answer your question. He's the younger of the two partners, and um. Oh, he's one of the main guys. Yeah. Oh, great. And, and like- uh, D- David Diggs, at least, um, is currently starring on the uh, Snowpiercer TV show. Oh, nice. There's also fine. an actor in it named Christopher Jackson, or I think he goes by Chris Jackson, uh, who has a pretty extensive IMDb as well as a very extensive theater resume. But I guess we're talking about things outside of theater. But also, after, so not in this production that we're going to watch, but also a lot of people, I know Taryn Killam was in, was in this at one point. Like, a lot of people have also come through uh, Hamilton at, at different times because it's that type of a show. And we haven't mentioned Philippa Sue, uh, who, again, I don't know her career outside of the theater world, but is a, is a huge uh, theater uh, actress. So, apart from the cast, how about quotes or songs? Robin, unfortunately, you know this one, so you don't get to participate in this part. But does anyone else know any songs? I mean, I do. Yeah, I, there is one song, at least part of it, that I've heard. I mean, I wouldn't tell you, be able to tell you the name of it or anything. But like, Sing it. Oh, no, I like, can't really recall it. But like, I... Sing it! <laughs> I mean, it's like it. They say Alexander Hamilton in the lyrics. Uh, Shirley, you can sing the song that I've been singing around the house recently. There is a famous. There is a. There's a few famous lines from this. Uh, one of them is, "I'm not gonna give away my shot." Yeah. So I've definitely heard. I uh, see. I saw Lin Manuel Miranda do my shot when I was watching a clip on uh, that British talk show, the Graham Norton show. But it was. Oh, like, I might have watched that. Yeah, it was like it's it, it was like too dense of a rap for me to be able to like repeat. You can't repeat just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. I'm not giving away my shot. Shot. Oh damn! Well done. I mean, no, no, that's sort of. I had a friend really. I don't want to get into too much of this in part one, but I had a friend really, really just say, "You gotta listen to the soundtrack. You gotta listen to the soundtrack." And the very first song. 
uh, is what Dan is referencing, which is like, I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm Alexander, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah, and I was like, is that's the one I've heard. Well, see, for me, bringing it back to football again, I keep hearing that. And, you know, I recently drafted for a fantasy football league and I kept like filling in accidentally. Alexander Madison. It's Alexander <laughs> Madison. I mean, I just think that's funny because that's two founding fathers. It is, up. yes. Also a a backup running back on the uh, Minnesota Vikings. Anyway, Dan, what's your take on Madison? I li- I like the the backup running back on the Vikings. Oh oh oh, not a big fan. I picked oh. him. And, and the founding father. Yeah, I like James Madison though. Um. I am curious if there will be a scene where so Hamilton, I don't know if our viewers realize this, they should, but that Hamilton wrote most of the Federalist Papers. And I'm sort of curious, like I have a sort of v- vision of like him writing one of the Federalist Papers, but it's like in song form. Do those lend themselves really easily to being uh, lyricized? I mean, probably not, but like, I'm sure none of this really They're does. Actually strangely poetic. I had to memorize a lot of them in grad school a couple summers ago, which I was very excited to see Hamilton for that reason. Really? Can you like quote any of them now? Uh... Not to put you on the spot. But <laughs> can you sing any of them now? <laughs> I'll have to come back. Uh, I'll have to come back in part two with some songs for that. Actually, ha- has anyone here read the... Um the book that this play is in, in not based on necessarily, but inspired by the Alexander Hamilton biography no. by Ron Chernow. No, I've no, I haven't read that, but in, uh, in undergrad, uh, there was a history professor that uh, required us to read. I think it was called stories of the founding fathers. So I have, I have read a bit about each of them and including the, the Hamilton Burr story and man, Burr, Burr is like one of the craziest historical figures. He literally tried to start his own country. We're going to get into Burr a little bit in part two. Don't worry. He's a very interesting man. I Um, have another prediction for Burr. I don't know if... Go for it. Or for the duel. Yeah. This is sort of half in jest prediction, but I sort of really want it to happen. So obviously, famously, there's a Burr-Hamilton duel. And since this is a musical, I think it would be really key if they had dueling pianos. <laughs> <laughs> Not dueling banjos? No, dueling pianos. And that's how they settled their duel. I, okay. I have a feeling that during... Uh, my predictions are that I think we're going to see a lot of Hamilton's life. A lot more than you would expect a single musical to contain. I think that during the duel, there will be some sort of strobe effect. And I have a feeling that during the, the, the duel, there will be a moment where time stops and Hamilton sings a, an 11 o'clock number uh, to, to the audience. Can you define uh, that for people? An 11 o'clock number is typically a showstopper late in the second act. That is either at the climax or just before the climax of a play. So will he, in your prediction, will he be like shot, then sort of step out from the action of the scene, spotlight on him, 
and then like singing with like a bullet in his chest. I think they are like taking very dramatic steps away from each other and the whole cast is gathered around and they're it's sort of like West Side Story where they're all like what's going to happen what's going to happen and he and they're t- and there's like they're taking the steps away and someone's counting down 10 9 and they get to 1 and they turn and th- fire and there's a strobe and then actually darkness a spotlight on Hamilton, and he steps forward and he sings. And now, is this song called "My Shot Reprise" because <laughs> it refers to him getting shot in the gut? I mean, I actually, I, I, I haven't actually put that. Weirdly enough, haven't connected that tissue. But yeah, in my version, yes, yes, and <laughs> um, we know that there is singing in the play, like straight singing. But um, my impression of this play is that it is also, uh, there's a lot of rap. So it's, it's like a, a hip hopera and uh, my, it's not really a prediction. It is more of a question. What I wonder is, is this a sing through like Les Mis where uh, there's no dialogue, everything is sung or is there actual dialogue interspersed throughout and the songs just come in and out? Um, right. Weirdly, I'm expecting it to be more of a sing-through, but I do anticipate there will be some spoken dialogue. I just think there has to be. But I'm leaning towards what you just said, Josh. I also think that... Also, also, not to cut you off, but just also, I'm kind of hoping you're right, because although I do love Les Mis, that's kind of the exception to the rule, because I actually kind of tend to really not like sing-through plays sung through plays like i prefer well typically i don't really like musicals very much in general but um in particular i if it's gonna be a musical i sort of prefer if it's the type where it's like we get dialogue and the songs just sort of like pop in and out so i'm kind of hoping it's more like that one last thing that i guess is also not a prediction and more just kind of something that i'm curious to see is um, how much is the play going to touch on slavery? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, should I make a prediction? You don't have to. It's just something that I had in mind because, you know, I'm sure it was, you know, relevant to Hamilton's life and to the lives of the other founding fathers. But then again, I'm not sure how it would be worked into the play or how much it would be worked into the play, you know? And I don't know, uh, see, like, I'm a big history nerd, but I have always found uh, the Founding Fathers and the Early Republic to be very boring. So I don't know very much about this period of history. So I don't know very much about Hamilton's own personal positions on slavery or anything like that. So I, I just, I don't know how much it would feature. Yeah, my my guess is it's not a prominent part of the play. I mean, I know, well, I shouldn't say I know. I'm pretty sure that Hamilton, like, personally opposed slavery. But obviously, since he didn't, I mean, he was a founding father, and he obviously didn't outlaw it. I know um, Jefferson was bad on it. Well, Jefferson owned slaves. Yes. Um, you know very famously. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure Hamilton was against slavery, but 
for the you know for the founding of the country still allowed it to happen right um, yeah the so thing is- my guess is it's not like a major part of the play but okay. i don't know well the founding fathers very consciously kicked the can down the road so i wouldn't be surprised if it's not really in the foreground of this story that would not surprise me either all right well we'll find out pretty soon because i think we are ready to watch for the very first time hamilton the musical i'm looking forward to this robin thanks for hanging out with us for this prediction part don't worry we will feature you more in part two we can get more into reactions to the actual uh viewing part you can yeah, tell this us is the longest i've been quiet in years <laughs> <laughs> you can tell us who's a better actor the british or the americans um <laughs> perfect all right i got my playbill i got my popcorn i'm ready to hamilton take let's, me let's to do Hamil- it wait i got one take me to hamil town <laughs> good god this is the part Watching the play. And now it's done. Hamilton. Da, 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 Hamilton. That that's how one of the songs went, right? That was the opening number, I believe. Yeah. Robin yeah, 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 yeah. It was my favorite song. <laughs> so guys, that was Hamilton. Spoiler alert, I liked it. What about you guys? I also liked it. Yeah? Yep. <laughs> I really Josh. liked it. Oh, yeah? What were you saying, Dan? Oh, I was going to say, I'm, I'm not super surprised I liked it, um, but I did enjoy my experience watching it. Watching it. I'm also not surprised that I liked it. I will get into it more, but maybe slightly surprised by how much. But, you know, again, like I said, uh, we'll discuss that in greater depth. Uh, Josh, um, you, as we talked about in part one, uh, greatly responsible for Lin-Manuel Miranda's success as you are. How did you feel watching your protege's big, big project here? It's an excellent, excellent musical, and it deserves a lot of praise I loved the songwriting and was very impressed with the staging and the theatricality. I don't think it's above critique, but that's not the point. That's not the point I want to stress. The point I want to hammer home is that I thought it was very, very good. And then Robin. um, So as we mentioned in part one, you saw this in London on the West End in the front goddamn row, goddamn you. <laughs> um, how did this compare to that uh, experience? Well, it was a high bar, um, but I, I, I still thought it was a phenomenal experience. Um, as Josh can attest, you know, I was still shedding some tears at some points, and I thought the, the cinematography in general was really fantastic um, mm. in, in terms of the storytelling. So... I loved it live. I loved it as a movie, and uh, it was it was really phenomenal. Robin, how much of the cast was the same as the version you saw? Zero percent. 
So really? I do have some notes on the cast. Yeah. Okay. The cast that I saw, um, yeah, they had, um, I think they had different casts just in West End in general. And then I think even just in the U.S. it changed since this original cast. But yeah, so this is a, this is something that, uh, what a behemoth. Where do we start, Dave? Well, I'll tell you where we start. We start with the background. So this play is based off the book Alexander Hamilton by the historian Ron Chernow. And I will also throw out this little tidbit. You guys, yesterday was the anniversary of the duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. I Someone texted me that today because I was like telling them I was watching Hamilton. And How they're many like, years? oh, by the way, it's the day after Hamilton got shot. Yeah. Um, the duel was in 1804, so um, I can't do math. math. 216? Yeah, thank you. 216 years, wow. Hamilton didn't live a very long life. How old was he when he died? Oh, I looked this up. I think he was like late 40s, early 50s, like maybe like 47-ish. It's a little unclear how old he was because uh, his birth year is unclear, but that sounds about right. Wait, so didn't he die the next day? And if so, wouldn't today be the anniversary of his death? That is correct. Ooh, pour one out. I'm pour pouring, one out for Hammy. Pouring a few out. Rest in peace. Should we take a shot? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm not taking away my shot. So Bring tr- it back to the man himself, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lin-Manuel Miranda is from New York. And how do we know this? We know it because his play spends an entire song just sucking New York's dick. (laughs) It's the greatest city in the world. Oh my God, we get it. You have a 24-hour subway. And that really is just like, if if you live in New York, you just have to repeat that. You know, it's like CrossFit or veganism. You just have to mention it. Well, anyway, so Lin-Manuel Miranda, he is from the neighborhood of Inwood, which is at the very top of Manhattan. He attended Hunter College High School in New York City, which is a really, really good high school. But the really fun tidbit about his high school experience is that uh, while he went there, he got bullied by... Uh, immortal technique really yeah is burr yeah apparently they're cool now but um at the time uh he said immortal technique was uh the guy who would like throw him into trash cans wow yeah does that change your opinion of the show we saw with immortal technique dave a little bit (laughs) he attended wesleyan university where he wrote the early drafts of what would become In the Heights and uh, actually performed the early versions of it there. In the Heights, uh, he premiered it off-Broadway, then it went to Broadway. It was very successful there. I mean, Hamilton won the Tony for Best Musical, but so did In the Heights. And so while In the Heights was having this successful run in 2008... Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda finally decided to take a vacation 
And while he was getting ready to go on vacation, he, he says he went into a Borders bookstore, was in the biography section, picked out the Hamilton bio, just randomly put it in his bag, read it, got inspired, and the rest is freaking history. Literally. So. Here's what he said in an interview about uh, what, what he found interesting about Hamilton's story and what he was trying to bring to the stage. It was two things that he pointed out specifically. One was um, he found Hamilton's relentless nature interesting, and he wanted to capture that element of him, his relentlessness. And then two was that he was interested in trying to tell an immigrant narrative uh, and you, you notice in the play, they keep like the word immigrant, especially around Hamilton, keeps coming up. They keep referring to him that way. And so he was interested in trying to tell an immigrant narrative, particularly in this time and place in American history, where um, the idea of what is an immigrant and what does that word even really mean is kind of questionable because, you know, it's not even a distinct country yet. And then it does become a distinct country, but it's a distinct country composed entirely of people who have moved there as either colonizers or as indentured servants, some of them as slaves. But you, you know what I mean? It was just uh, that that was his goal uh, in, in making the play. I get the sense that I don't know if I have anything to back it up, but I feel like Lin-Manuel Miranda saw himself in Hamilton. And I feel like that's why, like, I kind of was thinking a lot about why he, you know, not only like wrote it and produced it and everything, but also starred in it. And I feel like maybe when he was reading it, he got inspired by him and just saw himself in the story. Oh, sure. Um, that was just sort of the sense that I got. Um, again, I don't really have a lot to back it up, but I kind of, maybe he, he felt like it was a way for him to kind of tell his own story a little bit. Yeah, I'd buy that. I, I would buy that too. I also just think it sort of was interesting, like how much, especially near the end of the pl the play, they sort of, I don't know, make clear that their, the story of Hamilton and Hamilton as a man was very interested in his legacy and how he would be perceived by history. And like sort of, so when you kind of put a musical about that, like that is its own lens on history and things like that and sort of how he's known I mean, because like he's, is he just known by the duel by a lot of people, which is even a line within the, within the play itself and like what he's remembered for. I don't know. I, I find that very interesting. And also, I mean, it, it's, I mean, I know Josh, you mentioned earlier that there had previously been bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson, but um, it was a, a brave, I think, idea, even with that example already being out there to try and make, a musical out of such a potentially dry subject of a founding father, particularly not one of what was previously considered one of the more interesting founding fathers. I mean, Andrew Jackson's life lends, there's a lot of like stuff in Andrew Jackson's life. He's a bloody, bloody guy. Whereas Alexander Hamilton, as Dan mentioned, he's mostly apart from the duel associated with like fiscal policy you know okay. so to to make a musical about him that's kind of a ballsy move um what's one thing that struck me is that hamilton isn't even the most interesting character in hamilton and yet no. it still succeeds and it's still very successful 
And I my think my line was that I actually think after uh, watching this that I'd love a Hamilton cinematic universe type thing of musicals. Where or a we Hamilton would get theatrical a theatrical universe, we, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, and I get like a musical about Lafayette and a musical about uh, George Washington. Like they could all, all these characters and the actors portraying them are uh, so engaging and awesome. They could probably get their own standalone Lin Manuel Miranda musicals. That would Angelica Schuyler is the uh, yeah everyone the, but um, pe- everyone but Samuel Peggy. Jackson of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I could see that. And that's again not to get into a divergence of uh, and going ahead to talk about plot, but uh, and, and I mean Hamilton's story is interesting, but man, George Washington and the actor who plays him, Chris Jackson, they're they're fantastic. Well, hey, let's let's get into the cast. So, um, well, quickly before that though, just to mention, Lin Manuel Miranda did create the play, but he didn't direct it. It's directed by Thomas Kale, who did do a fantastic job. But um Thomas, we're not Thomas gonna get Kale, into him too much. He, I, this he also he also directed In the Heights is a longtime Lynn Manuel yeah, they're the coordinator. Longtime collaborators. Uh, collaborator. So uh just quick shout out for him. Do um, we know if he directed the other cities productions? Like how does that work? When uh yeah he basically does receive directing credit for them, but there are assistant directors and things like that who help work on the tours. So he might, the way the tours work is he does get time with the cast to rehearse it. And when they start moving it, they'll usually launch in one city where the director will typically be there. And then as it moves to different cities, it's assistant directors who kind of stay with the show and help keep it in uh, quote shape. Unquote. Okay. So the cast, um, as is pretty obvious to anyone who's seen it or even heard about it, uh, diverse cast, uh, all or almost all of the characters are people of color, and that diverse casting was a deliberate choice. Um, you know, they wanted to portray the America of yesterday through the lens of the America today, they said, and also to help center those immigrant themes we were talking about. So uh, that is sort of the idea behind that. And so for the cast, uh, I'll, I'll kind of keep it sort of to the top line people. So I won't hit everybody, but obviously Lin-Manuel Miranda himself as Alexander Hamilton, Philippa Sue as Eliza Hamilton, Leslie Odom Jr. As Aaron Burr, David Diggs playing the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, Renee Elise Goldsberry as Angelica Schuyler, Jonathan Groff as King George III, Christopher Jackson as George Washington, and Anthony Ramos as John Lorenz and Philip Hamilton. And obviously this is just the cast for the production that we saw, but that's the cast. Guys, is there anyone that you want to specifically call out? And part and parcel with that, are there any specific songs you wanted to call out as particular favorites of yours? Yeah, um, I'll start with the cast anyway. Um, I mean, I think Lynn just did an excellent job as Hamilton. I think that goes without saying, maybe. But um, some of the, not like the, he's he's obviously the biggest cast member, but um, the other ones that really stood out to me were, um, I forget his name already, but the guy who played Lafayette and Jefferson. David Diggs. Yeah, I thought that was a really fun performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of on the same vein as a fun performance, I also really liked King George. 
Like he was yeah. very small role, but like really nailed it in that it, kind of. He was phenomenal, and actually, I, I I'm not saying it's my favorite song, but it is in competition for my favorite song of the show. That song, his first is, one. I mean, all, all kind of the same. They're they're yeah. all I think the yeah. same tune, but like. Yeah, I had like Lynn can write a song. He can write a pop song. He can write a hook, and that one, you'll be back. Da da da. Oh, so it's just I, I I was a little bit out of the gate. I didn't love this. I was not skeptical, but it wasn't until the King George song, I was just mm-hmm. like, this is awesome. I know. That's I like where literally you came fully as- on board. As he was singing it, I like looked over and saw Josh just like like he like went into this being like, this is gonna be a little bit over. I saw it like it just melt away. He's like, damn. <laughs> I, I also thought he had King George had a really like uh, Dennis Reynolds energy. I don't know if anyone else got that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, like, the golden really god, the golden king. In my notes, I have the word "damn" written down and underlined after my shot. Is that was that your oh. favorite? I was honestly uh, no, sad. actually, it's not my favorite song. Um, so my favorite character, and Josh and I had a, a brief conversation about this off pod, and Josh alluded to it earlier. Um, my favorite character in this play was Aaron Burr, and a lot of that is, I actually um, I uh, I, I see a lot of myself in him. I kind of, I sort of, I philosophically uh, agree with Aaron Burr. I'm just a much more kind of cautious person in the way that he is. That kind of uh, more careful wait and see approach to life that he has, uh, I think is much more kind of who I am. So I empathize with Burr quite a bit. And also I liked Burr, uh, I liked Burr's songs the best. His songs were my favorite songs. So uh, Wait For It and The Room Where It Happened uh, were my two favorite songs. He's a, It's a strong performance. Leslie Odom Jr. is is terrific. Yeah, he was great. Do you have a favorite song, Robin? I I really like the last song, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. I, I, I felt like that was a really unbelievable way of kind of like tying up uh, all, like a lot of the subsequent themes and songs. I'm also going to agree that that the King George multiple songs were those are probably my favorite. Uh, and I have to say, uh, Jonathan Groff was fantastic, but I fell in love with King George in the West End. And it's funny because even though it was in London, the person who played the king, who I just had his name up, but now I forget, um, was even a little bit more ridiculous. And it was just like open mocking of like, British royalty, but everybody in attendance just loved it. So I already really, really loved, you know, his, th- that character in his performances, you know, ahead of time. And, and Jonathan Groff just really delivered. I got to jump in here and say, too, I said that was in the running for my favorite, but um, I'm fairly, like, if I had to, I had to pick a favorite, uh, it might be the Skylar Sister, the wedding song. The, the helpless tune so yeah. i'm glad you said that that was actually was going to be my answer it to me it's the most listenable like the one that i want to like hear again immediately that and anything featuring washington maybe it's right hand man is the one uh man i just loved washington just badass but so mm-hmm. do you want to start diving into plot so we Let's can do it put context to these 
Well, so getting into the actual recap, uh, I did notice immediately, Dan, this made me think of you as it began. You, you sort of brought this up in the first part. Um, as filmed theater, this was extremely well done. It was so well shot. Yeah, I, um, I had some concerns, not huge ones, but like some minor concerns about how it would come off. I think it worked. I still think it's like just as a medium, it's it's not perfect. You just by nature of it, um, but it's was done as well as it could have been. I might have more perspective if I had seen it live, like Robin had. So I can't really like contrast it very much. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Robin. Yeah. So um, I was definitely going into this feeling a little bit skeptical because, you know, especially. I don't want to keep bringing it up, but especially seeing it in the first row, it felt like it was really, really live interactive experience. But it's actually really funny because one of the things that I noticed sitting so close was like I was, <laughs> I like saw like their sweat and like their spit. And I was like, oh my God, they're so into it. But then I, I remember really specifically watching um, Jonathan on- Groff's spit. Yeah, and Jonathan, <laughs> yes. And I think there was a point when, um, when Burr was spitting too. So I was just like, okay, I'm still like, it's still like the, 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 the filming was so good that you're still able to get like their unbelievable facial expressions and yeah, their spit and just, you know, the emotion. So I, it was obviously not quite the same experience because you're not, you know, in a room full of hundreds of other people totally engrossed and you're not, you know, right near the band and everything like that. But I, I was very impressed. Yeah, I also thought it was just interesting that it worked as well as it did. But now that I'm thinking about it, I think part of that has to do with the fact that it was a musical. Like, I think if you're just doing a non-musical stage play, like, you know, we were talking about how you can sort of see the spit and like Robin's saying, how you can really see the emotion. And sometimes like when you're on stage in a theater, you almost have to overact compared to like a movie where you can sort of be more subtle because you have to have people in the back row see what you're doing. And so, but in musicals by their nature sort of lend themselves to be bigger performances. So it doesn't seem as like jarring, like you don't, you know, they don't have to be as subtle as they might be if they were like sort of a kind of a quiet moment, you know, talking or whispering or something like that. I don't know if that sort of, was made it more successful. Maybe it's it's a good point. I think I think that probably did help. Yeah. Out of the gate, there's it's a it's really the choreography is it's a very busy show, and I don't know if you have the choreographer's name down, but they certainly get some props because it's a hugely like well put together dance of activity. But seeing it on film, they're always tracking the the major crucial stuff. So it's a little bit easier on your eyes. Sometimes when you see a live show, I find them to be slightly overwhelming, trying to figure out where to put your attention. Uh, this really guides you through it very smoothly. And it's a lot of stuff to track from the very first opening number. It's Andy Blankenbuehler was the choreographer. Props to you, Andy. Yeah. So um, as it began, uh, this this might be... Uh, a mild critique, I suppose, which is um, Lin-Manuel is a great Hamilton and he is a good performer and he is a, he's very good at the rapping. 
but I did feel that particularly when compared to the murderer's row of professional Broadway singers that he had assembled around himself, he wasn't quite as good a singer as they were. Yeah, I mean, that that might be true. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean... There's definitely some better singers than him. I I don't think it stood out in any like particularly negative way. I mean, even no, it was fine. I just I feel like in a couple of moments, it's like you had like, you know, Leslie Odom Jr. going, or you know, he was singing with Philippa Sue or against Renee Lee's Goldsberry, and yeah, then I mean, Lin Manuel Miranda would sing with them, and I just felt you know he I feel like he just wasn't quite on their level as a singer. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, although at the same time, like which is probably my favorite performance and maybe some others here too, was um, the actor that played Lafayette. What was his name again? His real name? David Diggs. David Diggs. He wasn't like the best singer either, but I just thought his like performance stood mm. out. Oh yeah. Like, I thought he was a great singer, but not like a, he didn't like kind of wow my ears with his like vocals. It was mm. just more like the energy of his performance like really stood out. And like, so I think you can get away with like not having like an incredible Broadway voice if you have like a really amazing presence and energy. Yeah. And I think both of those actors like did that. Yeah. And basically that is what I'm saying because um, the first note I have here is uh, when we come up to Hamilton doing my shot, all I have written down is a uh, damn with an underline. Because I think that's sort of my point in it where, like you, Josh, I went in with like just a bit of skepticism. And that's where I hit the point where I was like, all right, this I'm not going to have to worry about any of that. I'm I'm on board with this. It's yeah. always good to be to have something be good enough that your skepticism is easily washed up to the side. But I again, just to, so the way this the show opens with Aaron Burr, not Hamilton. The very first line is Aaron Burr. Uh, a very famous, how does a whore son, um, you know, I don't know the rest of it. Of a- yeah. It comes, it comes back. Uh, it's a refrain that they he called back. They call back to a few times, but basically we have an opening number that introduces us to Hamilton and gives us like the bio of Hamilton from birth to college. Yeah. And then the refrain kind of keeps going. Like the refrain will kind of talk about like where he is in this point of time, but really quickly j- to, before we move on, I want to kind of, echo dave's sentiments when i uh the the first uh when i saw hamilton in in london there was the actor named carl queensborough who played uh hamilton and he was so first of all obviously lin-manuel miranda is unbelievable phenomenal and i agree with you like my shot and like a lot of the other songs just that energy and passion it comes through however i i think that I agree that he didn't quite keep the same caliber of song that some of the other performances performers do. And in addition, I mean, he does obviously get older in the show, but I kind of feel like the whole point is like, he's like this young scrappy guy <laughs> and no, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda obviously looks great, but this, this other actor that I saw was, was young and, you know, scrappy and an unbelievable singer. And I thought just brought incredible energy. So again, I do think that Lynn, you know, did a fantastic job, but I think that that was sort of what I was talking about earlier. Like he wanted to perform in it because it was like, this is me, but it was, 
it may not have been the perfect casting, but he did a great job. Well, so we meet everybody. We meet Alexander Madison. His name is Alexander Madison. That's Hamilton, you ninny. Oh, right. Not not scoring any touchdowns in this game. But uh, he meets Burr, and they have a slight difference of philosophy. Burr is, like me, very cautious, whereas Hamilton's philosophy is that he would rather be divisive than indecisive. One of the other best lines of the play, if you stand for nothing, what would you fall for, right? Yes. That was, that's, I mean, I, I, like my critique of the early part it, for anyone who cares is that it opens up with this montage of Hamilton's life and then we immediately get my shot where Hamilton is introducing himself to Lafayette and uh, the other uh this whole group of guys uh, Her- will Hercules be Mulligan, with him throughout the rest. So you've got uh, Lorenz. Now, my thing, I thought that actually it's an overwhelming amount of information. At the Like, I know that there's no exposition is tough, but it wasn't until towards the end of my shot, I was like, oh, it's codifying together and it's solidifying into, I, I'm starting to figure this out. But um, anyway, he's, it's clear that Hamilton, he's just moved to New York and he wants to become a revolutionary. And after that, we meet the ladies of the piece, who are the Schuyler sisters. And we get that whole big thing about how awesome New York is. And then we get our King George song, which, yes, was awesome. I loved the way he hit arrangement. (laughs) And then we meet Washington. Yes. Oh, he's so awesome. He even drops a nice chess reference, Dan. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you might like that. And you notice, too, that um, this kind of starts to build up the Hamilton-Burr rivalry because Burr is seeking the set, the sort of right-hand man position, but it's Hamilton-Washington Watts. Do we know if that actually happened historically? Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure the exact conditions like between Hamilton, uh, Hamilton-Burr versus Washington, but I know that Hamilton ended up playing a big role. I mean, obviously he was the secretary of treasury, but he ended up like influencing a lot more than that. Like his hand was in a lot of things within the administration, like much beyond the, beyond the scope of the treasury, like just the role as a secretary of treasury. Well, and just during the revolution, um, Hamilton was uh, Washington's uh, aide de camp. uh, And so sort of served in that position uh, where, and Burr, also served in the war and fought um, bravely in a whole slew of big engagements and everything like that. And it was also accurately portrayed that Hamilton did sort of strain at the limitations of that position because Washington sort of viewed him as uh, indispensable in that kind of organizing role. But Hamilton, you know, as the war went on was seeing his opportunities for military glory slipping away. And so that caused friction between him and Washington for a while. Eventually he did have to sort of like threaten to resign before Washington ultimately did let him go and take a field command. And then it did sort of happen exactly as it showed in the play. He was allowed to fight at Yorktown. Two questions. One, John Lawrence Obviously, that was also a historical figure. Is that, I mean, I wasn't 
like the character of John Lawrence. So I looked this guy up. He was very interesting. Um, not a whole lot of time to get too deep into him, but uh, here's the deal with John Lawrence. So he was from he was a uh, a guy from South Carolina who and we brought this up in part one about whether or not there would be much discussion of slavery in this. There wasn't a lot, but there was a little bit. And a lot of it came from this guy, and very appropriately, because this guy was a very outspoken critic of slavery. And he attempted to recruit a regiment of black slaves to fight in the revolution in order to win their freedom. That would be their reward for fighting in the revolution. The plan got actually approved by Congress, and they sent him back to South Carolina to go do it. But local opposition in South Carolina kind of scuttled the plan, and he was never able to actually pull it off just because, uh, you know, of opposition down there, unfortunately. Here is the really interesting bit, though. John Lorenz may have been bisexual. He, at the very least, had a history of extremely close relationships with other men that may have been just that, just extremely close friendships. But, you know, it's it's history, you know? So there's that danger of historians looking back and reading too much into things. But it's one of those deals where you look back and you think, huh, these two guys were really close. And that closest of those friendships was with Hamilton. So there is some speculation that they may have had a relationship. There is no hard evidence to suggest that there was. It seems like Hamilton was pretty uh, like into women. Yes. And again, there's there's nothing there's there's nothing to definitively say it's just one of those things where their their friendship appears to have been unusually close and it causes historians to kind of quirk an eyebrow Mm -hmm. but you can't do anything more than that well hamilton was a bit of a slut from what we gather yes he got around he He was a feral tomcat right yes yeah (laughs) although uh though uh (laughs) Lin-Manuel Miranda makes a point of saying that's true uh, to the Martha Washington anecdote. Apparently that is not true. Oh, really? I know. Well, uh, I, do we know if Lynn thought it was true? I don't know that. <laughs> so the recap so far, I mean, we've actually covered like a good 35, 40 minutes of the play. So this is what I was saying. It's a bit like the first act is super dense. He's basically got his core of founding fathers, bros. We've just covered Lauren's. Lafayette, uh, Hercules Mulligan, and Washington, and he's mi- and then he falls in love with the Sky- one of the Schuyler sisters, Eliza. Or both of the Schuyler sisters, right? Well, we learn maybe we see the musical number. We on the first pass of the number, yeah, it's just Eliza, but yes, then and we get helpless. The song you like, Dan. I also really liked the song. I will say, <laughs> I personally found a lot of the uh, romantic parts of the play to be very boring 
but they were bailed out by the fact that they had some of the strongest songs. Songwriting and theatricality, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I yes, mean- that's what I wanted to mention because um, there is a really nice piece of direction during the uh, reception at the wedding when Angelica is kind of freaking out a little bit. I mean, that sequence, I actually turned to Robin and said, I think I know what's going on, but I am a little bit confused because we watched their love story and we get to their wedding and then it was that like, turn the record back and like look at it again through Angelica's Yeah, did you guys understand that it was like that it was like a rewind? Did you understand that right away? I mean, I, I got it. I don't know if like instantly I got it, but I definitely like I understood it. I didn't. I thought it was sliding like a sliding door scenario where it was like a fake out that he ended up with Eliza and they were going to go back and show that he ended up with uh, uh, Angelica. And this is just like with Lorenz now where uh, the historical record shows that their relationship was bizarrely close and, and weirdly affectionate so like in their letters to each other it's just like strangely affectionate uh to the point where that that line that she has in the play where she's like hey you know maybe you could lend him to me sometime uh, a version of that line is in fact in a letter that angelica sent to eliza so there's some evidence to suggest that maybe he was they were having an affair but nothing hard. Yeah, it sounds like they they didn't address this in the in the show but I guess she actually had gotten married a few years before uh he met and married Eliza but it sounds like she married this guy for like status and money which I think that they did kind of refer to a little bit in her, you know, rewind number. So we get past the the wedding and everything. We find out there's even more scandalous stuff going on because it turns out that Aaron Burr is banging a British officer's wife, which, frankly, I think is the most patriotic thing you can do. <laughs> uh, cheating for cheating for your country. Exactly. There's a line he drops here where he mentions, uh, my mother was a genius. And I think this is a good moment to mention a little bit more about Burr because in looking him up, Burr was a really, really interesting dude he was an atheist so that was kind of interesting to find out and apparently um pretty pro for the time pro women's rights uh he was a huge advocate for women and women's education in his uh political career and while he was in the new york state legislature he tried to get a bill passed to allow women to vote Oh, That's interesting. I mean, I didn't know that. Um, I also thought it was particularly interesting because one of the lines in, in one of his songs when he's running for president is he's, I forget the, how it exactly goes, but he tells these ladies to have her their husbands vote for him. Yeah, well, the bill didn't get passed. No, sure, but that's still yeah. like, you know, I didn't realize he was pushing women's suffrage then. Yeah. Yeah, Burr, interesting guy. This is that song, Wait For It, which I just absolutely loved. Yeah, and then we get to one of the... So I said in the predictions, I I don't even remember if I said... that this. I think that what my prediction was that this would be a sing-through, but that there would be some dialogue. 
It was, it was totally, a little bit of dialogue, but it was basically, it was basically a sing-through. Basically completely a sing-through. But we are at the one part of the whole play, the entire evening, where there is a what would be a scene with dialogue between Washington and Hamilton. It's literally, the it's like two and a half minutes. I have the song list up. It's called Stay Alive, but underneath it says in parentheses theater. Uh, and it's just the back and forth between Washington when he sends him home. It's the only time they're, I mean, I think they may still be rhyming, but they are not uh, actively singing and there's no music behind the lines. This is also around the time to where we get our first duel of the play. There's a fight over Washington's leadership and Lawrence has a duel that um, Hamilton seconds him for. And we get a, uh, a song, the 10 dual commandments. Oh, Dan, so you might good. perhaps be familiar with the song that this is riffing off of. I assume it's the biggie 10 crack commandments. I believe you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about duels in general? Yes, I actually wanted to talk about duels in general. Let's I, talk duels. I, I just, the, my first, or my consistent thought throughout it was, boy, I am glad duels are not a thing anymore. Right? Like, what a terrible, terrible way to solve, like, conflict. But there are I so don't many, know. There's so many levers you can pull to resolve it until it's gunshots, right? Like, there are many steps along the way. To... It seems like a pretty efficient way to get things taken care of. I mean, there's... Efficiency isn't always, like, the best <laughs> solution to problems. I mean, I think part of it is because in contra- contrasting to, like, sort of present culture, honor was considered, like, a really high cultural value at the time, and it's, like, definitely lost its sort of cachet. And you can sort of argue there's, like, downsides to losing honor as, like, sort of a major uh, cultural force, but it's also really clear clear that there's a lot less, like, unnecessary violence because we don't consider honor, like, a a big, a huge deal like it was during those times. It's toxic masculinity, man. Yes, but it's also like they didn't have modern medicine, so there was probably a lot of like mi- like minor dual wounds that just still led to death. Oh, definitely. Even though like the the bullets were like less deadly, yeah, compared to modern bullets, but just like the fact that they, you know, they couldn't treat infections yeah. as easily or you know yeah. remove some, it. Like, you know, Here's yeah. some cocaine, like, let's, you know, <laughs> see what happens. Well, you weren't shot in the duel, but you uh, you stepped on a nail on your way there. So, unfortunately, see you're you going to die. Or the duel is on a rainy day, and now you have pneumonia. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> it did strike me, having seen Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and this, that this would be the better musical about dueling in this great number. This is another, and I haven't talked about it a lot, but part of the success of the stage show is the use of the turntables in the center. Oh, there's that huge ass lazy Susan. Yeah, it, it's it's yeah. two in the in the center of the stage. There's one circle, and then it has like a donut around it, and it's those two pieces of automation working together that allow them to do a lot of this, like walking. Half the cast is walking in one direction, and then someone is in the center. I mean, they maximize the the. They really get everything they can out of this device and the and this duel w- like taking the positions i mean it's 
it's awesome. I would I would watch these numbers again and again and find new cool things. Well, so the Burr-Hamilton tension continues to grow now that the war is over because they are having a bit of conflict over, of all things, the Federalist Papers. Are we at so, inter- have we hit intermission yet? Not quite. We're almost there. This is basically the last thing before intermission. Um, and so before intermission, I just have one more question for Dan, our resident uh, early Republic dork. Uh, <laughs> Federalist or anti-Federalist? Federalist. Yeah? Yeah. Because I do want to say, um, you know, uh, they do give uh, Hamilton a lot of credit for the Federalist Papers, and he did write most of them. Uh, but apparently they give Madison a bit of short shrift because as I was looking things up, he it wasn't the most influential at the time, but uh, Madison wrote Federalist number 10, which is at least today considered to be one of the most influential ones. And also they, I guess, make Hamilton out to be a little more progressive than he actually was because some of his ideas at the Constitutional Convention were, um... Dan, do you know any of them? Uh, I mean, not off the top of my head. Well, okay. So, uh, number one, he argued for a president for life. Oh, I mean, well, he, yeah. I mean, I guess now that that makes sense, especially because he was so surprised that Washington would give it up, which yeah. happened later in the play. But and um, and for senators for life, among other things. Two. Those have been two terrible decisions. Yeah. Now, Dan and Dave, I I want to ask your takes here because this is where I know. Uh, the history it's a little all over the place it am i wrong i you said it dave that they gave short trip to madison not just for the federalist papers but they i felt that for a bit they were trying to imply that hamilton was essentially the driving idea behind a constitution at all which i've always understood to be madison not only championed the convention but that the bill of rights and the concept of a constitution came from him and i understand they at the time i may be nitpicking it because they're talking about hamilton in the constitution and then they do the big number about the federalist papers but yeah i was not that madison's thing i i didn't get the impression that they were saying hamilton was the driving force beyond that i think there was a, even a part that he was asked to be a member of the constitutional convention instead of so, like creating the constitutional yeah. convention so he was a big driving force and uh, so after we win the war we have the articles of confederation which were too made the federal government too weak and hamilton hated them for that reason Uh, as you know you might get from what i've already said hamilton was a big believer in a centralized federal government so he's basically kind of a conservative actually so he was a big driving force in getting the constitutional convention called once the convention was happening though Hamilton wasn't super influential at the convention because, as I just said, a lot of his ideas were kind of like going too far. And in fact, he actually, Hamilton was opposed to the Bill of Rights. He didn't want there to be a Bill of Rights. Although, in fairness to him, part of what his concern was, was that if you put something in the Constitution that lists out specific rights that are in there, he was worried that people would interpret it as that means those are the only rights you get Uh, are like the specific. So if you list out specific rights, 
that might be the only ones you're allowed. Whereas if you don't mention any, then it leaves more flexibility. So you could take it that way. But basically, Hamilton wasn't that influential at the convention itself. Madison was probably more influential than Hamilton at the convention. But then once the Constitution was actually drawn up, Hamilton was extremely important in actually getting it uh, ratified and uh, passed as the law of the land. The musical accurately depicts that part of it then. Yeah. Cool. And so then he gets to be Treasury Secretary. And here we are in intermission. And what an intermission it was. Beautiful <laughs> 60 seconds. Now, did you guys actually pause it and go off and take a bit of an intermission, or did you just wait sadly for the minute to count? Oh, down? I waited. I waited. I um, went out. I went out and smoked a cigarette. I uh, I set up some dummies uh, on our front porch, so I kind of like elbowed them as if I was in a, a crowd outside of the theater, um, and then I <laughs> went to the bathroom and I had Robin lock the door to the living room, and uh, she had to late seat me because yeah. I was. I missed some of that. I went to the bathroom. I poured myself a glass of wine, and then I just like lit fifteen dollars on fire, and it was basically the same thing. Yeah, perfect. I wanted to talk about how Act Two starts because I thought it was brilliant. So there's a couple of different brilliant things about it. Number one is the fact that it opens with the introduction of Thomas Jefferson, which it took me a second to realize it wasn't Lafayette anymore. I know. Yeah. I well, so, okay, so let's start with the fact that he's cross-cast as Lafayette. I loved this piece of cross-casting because Hamilton is close with Lafayette. They're friends in Act One. And then Hamilton and Jefferson are arguing later in Act Two. And during the course of this argument... Jefferson accuses Hamilton of betraying his friendship to Lafayette in what he's arguing. Basically, Hamilton wants to be neutral in the war between Britain and France and thereby betraying his friendship to Lafayette. But because of this cross-casting, it's coming from the same person who played Lafayette in Act One. So it's just a small thing, but just by just by doing this tiny little thing, you get it to be coming from essentially the same man. Right. And I just thought it was just a nice little touch. But then two is the fact that basically Jefferson looms very large in people's minds of the founding fathers. And, you know, to a lot of people, based on what we know about him now, he's kind of seen as a villain. And even though... Burr is the guy who shot Hamilton. If you know much about Hamilton, you know that Jefferson is actually kind of more of the great arch rival of his life. And so you go through the entirety of Act One basically without introducing the villain. And so, you know, you come into Act Two, and if you really want to start Act Two with a bang and, you know, come back from intermission with some real pop you do it by introducing your villain finally and what so what a great way to do it what a great way to come back with some vigor you know introducing this huge character who's basically your big bad guy it's thomas freaking jefferson i just thought it was so brilliant and what an asshole i mean it's also just like a really 
energetic, fun performance. Amazing. Yeah. That really made it stand out. And a great number. And another great number. Like every song, every song seems to up the level from the one before. I mean, this is another great song. And awesome choreography. I love him descending from the the movable stairs. The set features a lot of uh, stair units being pushed around, and even though it's quite minimal in its concept, it's it it almost always works. It's it's always fantastic. And so, hey Dan, you must have liked this. They start arguing about the bank. Yeah, it's great. It's like right up my alley. Is and that I when they're having the uh, like the Eminem rap battle? Structuring the debate as a rap battle was so brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't quite dueling pianos. <laughs> but this is this worked probably better. That is cabinet battle number one. Yeah. Yeah. And hey, they get in a good dig at uh, Thomas Jefferson over slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Just to tack on here, too, and it's not the biggest historical distinction to make, but it is interesting to cast him as the villain when he has he's most associated with a longstanding rivalry with Adams where at the very end of it, they actually became very close friends and ended up dying on the same day, the 4th of July, no less. Yeah. So I'm not saying that it's a, it's just interesting to think he had a similarly fraught uh, and complex relationship with Hamilton, but I guess that's the nature of Hamilton dying young ish is that he sort of, you know, he was left behind a little bit. You can only have so many rivals when you die young. Well, maybe that's why you die young. Late 40s, which at the time, late 40s is not young. Yeah, when he was 20, he was like, he was like, I didn't expect to make it past 20. Yeah, Yeah. a good caliber of rivals. I mean, like, if Thomas Jefferson's your rival, you're doing pretty good. So, we get a lot of the cabinet, a lot of the, the tension in the cabinet. Yeah. And at this point, I did sort of assume that Hamilton was sleeping with both of the Schuyler sisters. I, I got that impression. Yeah, but now it gets even worse because introduce Mariah Reynolds, who the second she came on, my first thought was like, oh no, who, who's this hussy? It was a really Ooh. sexy, sexy song. It was a sexy hussy. But her husband wasn't too happy about it. Was it a honeypot or was it an innocent affair? I was was... wondering that myself. Um, It is not historically viewed as a honeypot, more as just a sticky situation that Hamilton got caught up in. What did Hamilton get caught up in? Hey, I need money. I don't have enough. Okay, that's cool. I'll give you the money. Oh, sex? Yeah, sure. Why not? That too. Wait, what? Hamilton, you should have known better. He should have, but he liked sex too much. Feral Tomcat. <laughs> this is where, too, now we get Hamilton dealing with Thomas Jefferson and we get the great Burr song, The Room Where It Happens, where he finally decides to act because he wants, you know, he sees Hamilton getting stuff done and he doesn't necessarily agree with everything that happens because Hamilton, he's dealing even with the people that he doesn't like, like Thomas Jefferson, but he's still getting everything that he wants. And Burr's like, I want in on this. And when he decides to act, though, he's doing all these things that Hamilton doesn't like. Like, for instance, Burr knocks Hamilton's father-in-law out of the Senate in New York. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how relevant this is to the plot of the play, but um, I found it interesting that he's, like, talking about how, like, he's not in the room and they're, like, doing all this stuff sort of behind closed doors. And to me, I just, like, couldn't help but thinking that, like, 
you know, it's not super fashionable to like think it's good to like have like backroom deals and things like that. But it did sort of show that there is a political benefit to doing that uh, where things actually can get done because like where like sometimes like too much transparency can be make it more difficult to reach compromise. I don't know if anyone yeah. on that. I see what you're saying. There's there should be a space for making deals. But also the room where it happened to is also cementing Burr's jealousy that he's not in it. So it's not just that he's mad that it happened behind closed doors. He's furious that he was not part of that behind closed doors conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely, I mean, Berg throughout the entire play comes off as like, he just like doesn't have real strong values, but just wants to be a part of it for his own ego. Well, you know, I don't know if I agree with that. It's not that he lacks values. It's that he is a cautious man and wants to be careful, and it's at this point that he starts to run up against the limits of that philosophy. Well, you don't think that the play was portraying him that way? I mean, I don't know about his, like, in, in historical terms, but, like... I, I just mean within the play. Yeah, within the play, I feel like I got the impression that he didn't have values. I mean, like, later on, or I forget exactly where it happens, but um, when he... It is later on, when um, Hamilton backs Jefferson... And I wish I could remember the line. I should have wrote it down, but he's singing how at least he has... Basically what he says is, I don't like Jefferson, but at least Jefferson has values, whereas Burr has none. Yeah, Yeah, at least he stands for something, but you stand for nothing, I think. Right. But I feel like that's Jefferson being unfair, or sorry, Hamilton being unfair and Hamilton being an asshole. You think the play was trying to portray Hamilton as an asshole? I don't know. I mean... Maybe to a certain extent, or maybe to a certain extent, it's me just having more empathy for Burr because I see myself in him. I think that's it. <laughs> but I think also there, there's an extent to which Burr does have values. He's just very, um, it's less that he's indecisive and just that he is very slow to act and uh, cautious about it. Maybe, but they, like, I mean, there, there's this whole thing where he like switched parties just to get the seat. Right, I get the sense that. that I get the sense that it, it wasn't that he ha- didn't have eyes. Maybe he did, but it was more that he was willing to kind of do whatever it took to, you know, obtain his goals to get power. Versus, I think, you know what I mean. I think it was like he he didn't really want to fight for anything but himself. That was the sort original flip flopper, hmm. the OG flip flopper. Well, yeah. spoiler alert, but. After the musical is over, I mean, Burr's eventual political career led him to trying to create a rebellion to take down the United States. Like, yeah. Burr eventually waged war on America. Well, maybe. We'll okay, go, put a pin in that. Got, got too far ahead there. The point <laughs> so, okay. is, at this point in the musical, right. Burr is pissed, and uh, he is confronting Hamilton at every political opportunity. Hamilton, at this point, uh, once George... Washington decides not to run for office again, which was a huge historical decision. Uh, Hamilton also sort of rescinds uh, from the political spotlight. He's forced to because Burr and in the play, Jefferson and Madison all expose him for the affair that he's had. But I don't know if this how historical this was. 
But instead of uh, denying it, he says, yeah, I did that. Here's the context. And now I'll just go fuck off. Yeah. So um, I, I can tell you about this thing with the um, with Hamilton publishing all this stuff because I watched Lin-Manuel Miranda's drunk history on it, <laughs> which is basically so it wasn't actually um, the people in the play who confronted him. What happened was so he's been paying off Mariah Reynolds husband to keep silent about what happened. It's a classic blackmail scenario. But then um, the person who actually catches wind about it is a couple of guys and James Monroe. Ooh, what a bastard. I know, right? Damn you, Monroe. They get wind about it because uh, the husband who's blackmailing him gets arrested and in order to weasel his way out of it is sort of like, hey, I've got dirt on Hamilton. And they go to confront Hamilton because what they think is they're looking at is um, financial impropriety in relation to his work as Treasury Secretary. Right. And Hamilton's like, uh, no, I never did anything wrong as Treasury Secretary. All I was doing was banging this dude's wife and paying him off to stay quiet about it. I will totally admit to sex stuff, but not financial stuff. And they're like, okay. They go away, but then a reporter gets his hands on the information somehow, and Hamilton realizes it's all going to come out. And so before it can come out in a way he can't control, he publishes everything he has himself in order to basically control the narrative. You know, because it's important to him... He's like, I would rather have everything come out and have everybody know that I'm a, an adulterer than have anybody think that I did anything wrong, you know, uh, as, you know, embezzling or anything as far as like financial impropriety in my position as treasury secretary. So that's what happened there. Cool. Makes sense. Well, Eliza didn't see it that way. Well, look, I was going to say the way that you just described it, maybe the, <laughs> he... <laughs> He's, you said he's paying the guy off and still banging his wife. So it's like, wait, <laughs> Hamilton, they got to this arrangement and Hamilton was like, oh, man. I, guess well, I don't I know if he was still banging cut, her. I should cut the affair off, but I am still paying him. Well, he said it sounds like the husband was like giving him permission. I am paying him every month. And I don't he was know. like, keep, going, keep banging my poor wife. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, if you have to pay, you might as well keep doing it. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know if he kept doing it or not. More That's, bang for your buck, literally. Uh, he's gonna. Hey, he's, he's gonna where that expression. Wait, really? No. <laughs> so, oh, Josh, though. Uh, so Eliza is upset, and she burns all the letters recording uh, her. Uh, it was awesome. Real fire on for stage. A while. We, I first, yeah, that that must have uh, that requires a lot of permits and. At first, I thought, oh, she just set on fire and she tossed it in the can. When the can ignited, I, I was like, oh, Lord, the amount of paperwork that had to be done <laughs> to get that effect. But it looked great. It was so cool. It's always nice when, you know, that's actually, it's not like that complex a thing either. It's real fire. Prob I mean, I don't know this, the specifics of this. Effect. But you do fire on stage. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, Hamilton Jr., goes and gets himself in a duel. I will say, though, that uh, historically, uh, George Eaker did not shoot early. Do they imply that? 
He's a he, shot before the 10, right? Or on the 10? Yeah, in the play, he shoots early before the 10 is up. But um, apparently in real life, both of them uh, declined to shoot for uh, a full minute after the 10 count before what they finally shot their guns. So w- at what point did he shoot straight up in the air? Or did that did that happen? No. That also did not happen. So do you know what did happen? Basically, the 10 count went, and they they both kind of like stood kind of like for a minute. And then finally, they were both like, all right, let's just do it. And one guy did better than the other. Oh. Philip yeah. shot at George? Uh, Yeah, from if I was reading it right. By the way, I know that, I mean, that must have been something that stem from isn't that Hamilton did shoot in the air against Burr, right? So that's that's historically a thing. He shot over his head. Okay. Yeah. Hamilton has been a pretty engaging character up until this point in the play, but he's a little bit of a dip when he's like, son, don't worry. That boy has no interest in harming you. Just shoot it in the air. Like he challenged you to a duel. If he didn't have any interest in harming you, he wouldn't have challenged you to a duel. Maybe duels were really, really common. It was just like the default, and like ninety nine percent of the time, it was just like we're good, and they just like shake yeah, hands. I mean, definitely. I, that's what I, I'm curious about too, which is why Dave's pro duel position is a little <laughs> strange. I just think it's a, it. It seems to get a lot of shit done. How many duels a week do you think you would do if you could? If you could, at least two a day. I would do one at sunrise and at sunset. Who would win in a duel between you and Josh? Oh, me. This is beyond the scope of this play, but I will say that listeners at home should really look up Lincoln's famous duel, which is what? quite interesting. <laughs> he did get out of it in a clever way. Yeah. But um, this does lead to uh, one of our first uh, song reprises where I did notice that um, the Lin-Manuel was very clever in the way he brought lyrics back in the reprise to the songs and repurposed them. So like in this, you get uh, Stay Alive coming back when Eliza and Hamilton are singing uh, to Philip as he perishes. And uh, another another line comes back later that I thought was extremely effective, sort of as a callback that I'll mention when we get to it. But anyway, so Hamilton and Eliza sort of um, reconcile over Philip's death. And uh, I frankly found the whole thing pretty boring. And evidently the play also found it pretty boring because the next line from Thomas Jefferson is, can we get back to politics? Also, one thing that I noticed about getting back to politics was that was the election of 1800, but Philip died in 1801. Ooh. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, but, whoa. I did appreciate that the, even the play acknowledged that maybe people were feeling bored. Should we have a Theater Sins podcast? No, yeah. fuck those guys. I'm kidding. They're the worst. So we are at the election of 1800. In the election of 1800, Jefferson and Burr were on the same ticket. This was the very first election to have tickets... 
this is the point when we originally started the country, we didn't want to have political parties because we thought it would be uh, too divisive and tear the country apart. Eventually, we saw how ridiculous that assumption was and we got past <laughs> it and we formed political parties. Yeah. So we have the Federalists, which are ostensibly the group around Hamilton and Adams. But as we saw in the play, that group tore itself apart due to the rivalry between Hamilton and Adams. So they fucked themselves in this election. The other party was called, ironically, the Democratic Republicans. And they ran Jefferson at the top of the ticket with Burr as his VP. And the voting at this time was really fucking weird and I don't understand early Republic stuff. So I don't understand quite how this happened, but basically partially due to Hamilton doing fucking stupid stuff, uh, Jefferson and Burr wound up tying in the electoral college. And so it did come down to a question of with the electoral tie, the decision goes to the house of representatives and the House of Representatives hated Jefferson because the House of Representatives was controlled by the Federalists who hated Jefferson, the Democratic Republican. And Burr, uh, even though he ran with Jefferson, he had more friends among the Federalists. However, Hamilton still had a ton of sway with the Federalists and Hamilton did a lot of politicking behind the scenes and this is where we get Hamilton basically saying that even though he doesn't like Jefferson, uh, Jefferson is much less dangerous to have as president than Burr is because Burr doesn't have any principles. Jefferson has principles. They're bad principles, but he has principles. Burr doesn't have any principles. So vote for Jefferson and Jefferson becomes president. Which ended up working out for the country. Jefferson had a pretty successful presidency. I suppose so. However, uh, we also see, just as a note portrayed in the play, um, Aaron Burr, as Jefferson's campaign manager, um, innovated a lot of what we consider uh, modern-day campaigning in this race. I have this quote here about the 1800 election. The jockeying for electoral votes, regional divisions, and the propaganda smear campaigns created by both parties made the election recognizably modern. No. Burr, in fact, innovated some of the earliest modern campaigning tactics, including, as we saw in the play, Burr basically invented door-to-door -door canvassing. Did he oh. also invent targeted Facebook ads? Yes. That was the thing in the musical that, yeah, I kind of also, like, Hamilton did, I thought Hamilton had a stronger hand in that election, but there was an interesting moment where Burr is like, yo, you fucked me, Hamilton, and Hamilton's like, well, Mr. Vice President, come on, and, and Burr's like, nah, man, I'm not the Vice President, and Hamilton seems genuinely like, that's not what I wanted, but... I think in IRL it was what he he didn't he did actively like suppress Burr, right? Yeah. But so anyway, so Burr was actually the vice president during Jefferson's first term. Um, oh, he was? Yeah. Yeah, and then his second term it was uh George Clinton, is that his name? And Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah. I don't know how it worked in Jefferson's second term. I do know that 
originally the runner-up became vice president. Right. And then in this election, they ran together on a ticket. And then uh, during Jefferson's term, basically, because at least partially because Burr was very close with the Federalists and because Burr, once they tied, was basically like, well, maybe I could kind of win this. Basically, Jefferson didn't trust him. So once the administration started, Burr was basically frozen out of everything. So he even during the administration, he was vice president, but he never he was never let into any power during the administration. And then he wasn't brought back for round two. So do you guys want to hear the really stupid way the duel actually happened? Yes. Sure. So Burr runs for governor of New York. Hamilton fights against his election. Someone says to Burr that when Hamilton was working against Burr's election, Hamilton expressed an even still more despicable opinion of Burr than Hamilton had even during all the other stuff that had happened before. And Burr demands an apology. Hamilton says that he doesn't remember doing that. But because he doesn't remember saying this more despicable thing, that means he doesn't really feel like he can offer an apology for doing it. So, Burr feels like his honor requires him to challenge Hamilton to a duel. Hamilton feels like his honor requires him to accept lest he looks like a coward. Ironically, Hamilton intended not to shoot at Burr. He intended to throw away his shot. Oh my gosh, after all that, he was throwing away his shot. Yep, he intended to throw away his shot. The duel took place very close to where his son died. Hamilton fired above Burr. Burr shot him anyway. And Hamilton dies. He looked very poorly upon, even at the time. I mean, yes, it was. Yeah, they do reference it. Burr says it, but I also is it not true that Burr was a a historically terrible shot? Oh, I don't know. I think that was a real thing. Was part of the reason why Hamilton accepted the duel was Burr was famously bad at it. I did note during the play, though, this is another point in the play where there's a nice reprise of an earlier line where Eliza comes down to him and she sings, Why Do You Write Like You're Running Out of Time? That was a heartbreaker. Yeah, that's a, that was a good line. And so, yeah. How Man, we duel, actually, here how in did, Act 2, wound up talking about the history a lot more than the play. The history is maybe the most interesting part of it. Well, let's talk about, I think it'd be cool to talk about as the duel is happening and as the shot is fired, sort of that, what that looks like and kind of how, you know, the bullet was kind of very slowly, he was like reliving his life. Let's talk about that a little bit because I thought that was awesome. It was very nicely directed. Yeah. It wasn't exactly how I predicted it, but there were elements of it that were similar. Yeah, it wasn't a strobe, but it definitely sort of had sort of like stop and start kind of effect kind of like what you were talking about yeah but i was shocked shocked that they didn't get another song there i thought the soliloquy monologue thing was weird like i was not prepared for hamilton to all of a sudden deliver a shakespearean monologue Mm. 
I liked it though because I think it's like, it, it, you know, we've been talking a lot about duels and we can't think about what would be going on in their minds during this duel beforehand. Like, you know, he wrote down that he was going to throw his shot, but there's got to be some last minute questioning. Like, what do I actually do? Like, it's got to be anxiety, you know, ridden. So I think it was sort of just like a view into like, what is, what is happening in the mind right before you take a shot? Yeah, I agree with that. God only knows. I did find it interesting and kind of lovely that they ended the play on Eliza. Yes. But this, this is like one of my favorite. No. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Wait, uh, what did you say, Dan? Was didn't she like gasp at the end? No, no. They they end the the final moment of the play is Eliza's song, uh, sort of to Hamilton, just singing about uh, the orphanage. But then at the that, end, after that, she does gasp. Yeah. Yeah. Dan is highlighting that the very final moment of the play is her gasping. You don't remember that, Dave? The, I don't. It, it's the one thing I've seen. I've been trying not to, to spoil much this week, but uh, two things have shown up a lot in Newsfeed article suggestions. And one is, I guess there's rampant speculation about what the gasp from Eliza at the end is supposed to uh, mean or what it's I, supposed to symbolize. I missed that. Oh. Did you just, you must have just what does it mean? I haven't read the articles because I, I didn't want to know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I wasn't sure. I was going to ask. I took it. I took it as the first of all when I referenced that this song was my favorite. I think it was because, I mean, I as a woman was very excited. There's so many historic women who's. There are some you know whose stories have been told really well, but there's also a lot who haven't been. So I just I love that she didn't just kind of. She lived until she was 97. And she made it, it was about her story too. It was like, you look back at all the romance and it was like, this whole musical was also about her and, you know, her story and her accomplishments and how she moved things forward. And I thought the gasp, was, I thought it was like she was telling her story. It was sort of like going back and forth a little bit. Like he dies, here's what happened over the next 50 years. And then at the very last minute, we go back to the moment he died. Like when she found out, that was sort of what I gathered. Hmm. I, I can see that. I feel that. It also could have been the gasp of a person who's just had the final 90, you know, 70 uh, years of their life put out in front of them in song. Oh, like her last breath. Well, she's like, that's what I do. Blackout. Yeah, yeah, I didn't catch it, but both of those are plausible to me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's the, it's kind of crazy because it's two hours and 40 minutes long and yet at the end you're sort of it, it does leave you in a sense wanting more left me wanting a little bit more i mean it was a lot of history that happened in that and like it by nature of like the events it's like you sort of want to dive more into certain particular aspects of it which they clearly just didn't have time for but i mean they did cover like a huge portion of like the founding of the country, like his life, like other people's lives and relationships, like a lot happened. Yeah. And it's like you said, Robin, they, they did include the stories of the women in his life, which, uh, you know, Eliza, Angelica, the Schuyler sisters, th these are people who I think would, in the hands of somebody else probably would have been overlooked and it is yeah. eliza who actually gets the final moments of the play so i just really quickly looked it up because i was curious and i i really i i love the theory that i just read about the gasp 
they are saying, so I guess she kind of like walked to the edge of the stage and gasped. So, you know, the whole, so the whole song is like, did you, will you tell my story? Can I tell your story? The thought is that she looks out at the audience, breaks the fourth wall, realized that we told their story and gasps. Hmm. Okay. I really like deep. Uh, it's pretty damn impressive that a musical that covers this much history is this exciting. So I guess I want to, I don't want to jump to like the final section of this, but now that we're at the end, I was very cynical and it is cool that it is as good as it is. Well, so getting a little bit into uh, people's reaction to it, I don't think we need to cover the positives so much because we just know how positively received this play was. I want to talk a little bit about some of the critiques of it a little bit because there are a couple of interesting ones. Um, number one is something that we've talked about a little bit already, which is just there's the critique that the play makes Hamilton look a little bit more progressive than he really was, which we've talked about. Uh, one person in particular had that critique, which is uh, an activist named Ishmael Reed, who actually went so far as to write his own play called The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is uh, it's basically a... Um, Christmas Carol style play where Lin-Manuel Miranda is visited by a whole bunch of ghosts who are, you know, there's like one of them is like a slave who is like, why didn't you include our stories enough in this? And one of them is like an indentured servant, you know, like all the people whose the uh, stories are not included in the play enough in order to tell the story of this sort of great man of history who's already had his story told. And um, I think too, you know, this play came out in 2015 when Obama was president and things were going great. And it's it really does seem to belong to a much more hopeful moment in our history. I was watching an interview with the cast on TV and um, uh, Leslie Odom Jr. said something which I thought was so interesting, which is that he said um, a kid, like a young younger kid said to him, about the play, you know, when I watch Hamilton, all I see is I just see a bunch of people of color telling white people's stories again. Ooh, interesting. So there are things that, as progressive as this play is in its meta elements, you know, there are these critiques that you can bring up. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, like, some fairness to, like, the a meta critique of, like, we should be telling more of those stories. I have trouble criticizing it within the context of just criticizing this play. I sort of, like, take Roger Ebert's, like, um, kind of famous critique framework of, like, it's not what something's about, it's how something's about. Like, you know... Lynn decided not to tell those stories about like, I mean, he could have written a play about, you know, s slavery during that time, but he chose to tell a different story. And the fact that he chose to tell this story in this way, you know, with people of color and like, you know, in told a musical, you know, he, you have to sort of critique it on its own terms. Like did it work for what he was doing as a piece of art? And it's a, so almost a separate conversation of should we also have more 
you know, works of art about this, these other topics. Um, yeah. It might be easy to forget that it just like, it was revolutionary just to cast the, the play as he did. Right. That was a big deal. And a that huge can, step and it's can, kind of embarrassing that it took till 2015 and was such a big deal at 2015 but it was and you know that we can celebrate that you know i think to the point of Which, you, uh, wait, sorry not to cut you off josh but what? just to say not that some of these critiques don't have merit but sure just, agreed know. agreed well I, I think it's interesting to, t to focus on the casting a little bit and the dilemma that you put forward dan there is something nice about the way that this is the idea behind driving but this musical, which is they're not necessarily white person stories. I mean, they are the founding fathers were historically white, but at this point in our history, they're um, the idea that they're American stories. So the casting of the characters behind them, because America is a melting pot, you can sort of break away from the specific, but, uh, it was a cool thing. I think that, but the thing about that time period, 2015, was we were all excited because we thought we had kind of finally gotten to a place, you know, a lot of Americans thought that we were had had the car, hard conversations and we were doing great. And I think the last, the tragedy or the, the horror is like something like Hamilton uh, allows you to forget a little bit how racist America still is. Like just because Hamilton exists doesn't mean racism is over, right? And that's that's mm. what a lot of people... In, who are very well intentioned that's where their their mental uh trap i think that really really recently i mean i think that a lot of it was hamilton it's kind of there's villains and heroes but in in general it's sort of casting our founding father fathers in general in a hero light which i think so much of america is like yeah patriarch our founding fathers are amazing which isn't to say it is or isn't true but i think very recently as we are starting to as a country very much you know how do we you know dismantle and how do we recognize and dismantle systemic racism we're starting to look back at the history of the united states to our founding fathers and saying maybe they weren't the heroes we thought they were and i think that there's always been people that are recognizing that and saying yeah why are you telling white stories but i think for the whole we're just like yeah america but recently i think that there's sort of a reckoning in who we are and how we were founded and so i think it's really an interesting time to have this to see this in this light of of what we've been dealing with you know in yeah. recent history yeah I, I i totally agree with that uh before we get into our final sort of you know thoughts and judgments on it i just wanted to mention this play in its original broadway run one at the tony's best musical best book for a musical best score best actor in a musical leslie odom jr Best Featured Actor in a Musical, David Diggs. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Renee Elise Goldberry, Goldsberry. Best Costume Design, Best Lighting Design, Best Direction of a Musical, Best Choreography, Best Orchestrations. That's 11 wins out of 16 nominations. It has the record for most nominations. Uh, the record for most wins is 12 which is the producers. It also won a Grammy for best musical theater album. It also won a Pulitzer, which means Lin-Manuel Miranda has won three Tonys, three Grammys, 
an Emmy, an honor from the Kennedy Center, and a MacArthur Genius Award. He's not EGOT yet, is he? Not yet. 40. Give him time. He's only 40. Yeah, he'll get it. And just as a final piece of trivia, they were planning on replacing Hamilton on the 10, but because of the renewed popularity that he got from the play, they decided to replace Andrew Jackson on the 20 instead. Which is just a better choice for player yeah. not. <laughs> Until, of course, Trump became president, and then they oh. didn't, but whatever. Anyway, guys, uh, it's final judgments time, so I guess we'll uh, take it one by one and ask like if we, we find this play better late or never, and you can include generally what you thought about it. Uh, Josh, do you want to go first? Well, I was going to say, one, I think it's funny because I do think there's a whole other podcast where we could just dissect the theatricality of it or just talk about the politics of it. It's You said that this would be a long part two, and it has been, but it's wild how we still have hours more of conversation topics to hit. I know. So you've done a great job, but I'm saying I mean, that's a testament uh, to the musical. Look, I got blocked on Twitter by Lin-Manuel Miranda many years ago because when this was in previews of the public, he put something on his Twitter about not sending him reviews of it, and I said something flippant about how he should you know, live his life in an ISO tank if that's what he expected from the internet. And he blocked me. I don't know whether he actually did it or whether it was an intern who runs his account. And for several years of my life, that made me so bitter and angry about all things Lynn. But I finally watched Moana and the songs are amazing and I had to start to cave a little bit. And now Disney Plus has given me some humble pie to eat because Hamilton is better late than never. And you are definitely silly if you are not watching it because of the hype. Myself included. Robin? First of all, I feel like we need to create a campaign to get him to unblock you. Maybe with the release of this podcast episode, we'll get that recognition. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As you know, it's not a real better late than never for me since I have seen it. Um, But in general, I have to say that, yeah, going into the play... I thought it was going to be overhyped. I, I thought, you know, no way was it going to live up to its name. But I kind of, this might be a silly comparison, but I kind of feel like it's the Harry Potter of theater. <laughs> and that I feel like Harry Potter got people into reading um, kind of on a really widespread okay. level. And I feel like it's both getting people into history and theater. Um Harry Potter, of course, is a little bit troublesome now uh, with J.K. Rowling's, you know. You can separate piece. the art from the artist. Exactly. But anyways, any anything that can bring history in theater and make people so excited about the performing arts is incredible. Um, Question for you, though. Would you, would you say that the Disney Plus version, mm. if you're going to have someone who hasn't seen either, would you say watch it on Disney Plus? and then see the tour if you can, or would you tell them to wait? I would tell them to definitely watch it on Disney Plus because Lord knows when we'll be able to see live performances again, and I think that it would be a mistake to wait because it is so good. That's a good question. Dan? Uh, I'll just say that 
I mean, like the strength of a musical ultimately rests on the strength of its music. And well, the music is really good. So I think it works. It's, uh, you know, better late than never. Um, It's, you know, it's a great soundtrack. It's uh, if you like music, you know, and like kind of fun songs, like it definitely has that. I mean, you don't even have to be particularly interested in like the history of it and you can still get something out of this play that's kind of fun and exciting and worth watching. Cool. Which leaves me. um, This play for me in terms of it being a better late than never and my reaction to it going in to my watch, this had everything working against it. So it's a musical and I don't really like musicals. It's a sing-through musical, and I mentioned I don't particularly like that style of musical. Uh, it's filmed theater, and that never works. What's more, though, uh, is that I'm just, I'm a contrarian by nature. The more something is hyped up, the more likely I am to ultimately be disappointed by it. And I will admit that maybe I do tend to kind of push back against hype a little bit. And I mean, I guess just, you can just look at the nature of this podcast and see that, right? Because the whole thing is built around interrogating hype. And yet, for all of that, this play was fantastic. It was just the best of live theater. And it was the best that a musical, it was the best musicals can be. Uh, I mentioned I watched this with my mom. And I'll quote what she said when it ended. She said, this show is brilliant. And she also said, I wasn't prepared to be wowed. And I totally agree with that. I just, you know, I went in knowing that people were wowed by the show. And I didn't think I would be. And so I wasn't prepared to be wowed, and I still was, even though I basically, I had my armor up. And so I'm going to say that this is better late, but what I want to make sure is clear is that um, it's not better late just because it's good, because that's not what better late means. Better late doesn't just mean that it's good. It's better late because I think it's inspiring and it might not be inspiring for me for the same reasons that it might be inspiring to other people, but nevertheless, I did find it inspiring. Um, And the way I would explain it would be, so I was, one of my majors in college was I was a theater major. And when I used to get writer's block, what one of my mentors used to tell me for advice was if you get writer's block, go see something, go see something live. And that will hopefully inspire you. And I, that was good advice. It usually worked for me. I would go see something live. It didn't have to be a play, but seeing something live would usually inspire me to write. And for me, it usually worked in one of two ways. Either I would see something bad and I would think, well, damn, that sucked. I know I can do better than that. And here, I'm going to show you. 
and I'll, I would write something. Or I would see something good and I would think, okay, I don't know if I can necessarily do something that's as good as what I just saw, but I would really like to try and do something that good. And Hamilton was the best possible example of the latter. I, I just, it was so good that, I mean, obviously I'm not saying that, you know, I think so highly of myself that I could ever write something that good. But what I'm saying is that seeing it was inspirational in the way that like, it really made me want to go back and sit down at a computer and try. And I think that's really awesome and amazing. And so, yeah, I just, I loved it. I thought it was incredible. And, uh, Dave, it is a better light, so. Dave, are you crying right now? <laughs> I'm not crying, but I thought Hamilton zoom, was just a wonderful video is a show. Little, okay, well, the Zoom video is a little fuzzy, but I think I see some tears. I bawled like a baby at the end of it. So, anyway, better late for Hamilton for me. Well, all right. I think that's our show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, please email us at betterlatethanneverpod at gmail.com or you can tweet at us at betterlate underscore pod. Guys, thank you very much for doing this podcast with me. I know it was an epic one, so thanks for sticking around and having this convo with me. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for hosting. Right on. Good show, everyone. And for all the rest of you out there, I will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.